you open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and to chapter 12. This will be our, our last, for a little while anyway, in our study. I, I tried really, really, really hard to figure out how to finish the book before Advent, and I had it. It just wasn't going to work anyway. In other words, I put it on the paper, but it just wasn't going to work. And so what we're going to do is we'll finish up at this part. We'll have a time to enjoy God's blessings to us of being participants uh, of uh, his mission to, to the nations, preparing for Thanksgiving, God's gift to us of Christmas. And after we've marinated and all that, we'll come back and see what the writer of Hebrews says to us uh, at the beginning of the new year. And we'll look at Hebrews 13 in January. But this morning we have the opportunity to see what he speaks to us in a very powerful and, and yet uh, uh, um, practical way this morning. If you've been with us, you recognize, or if you're familiar with this book of Hebrews, you recognize that the writer of Hebrews has been encouraging us in a number of different ways to uh, live our lives uh, with an orientation uh, and a growth in, in holiness, remembering that God has said that he is holy. And therefore, that those who belong to him are also to be holy, even as he is holy. He reminds us that it's a progress. He, he likens it to a, a race, uh, because we are on a, a long race, continuing to encourage us towards holiness. He changes metaphors this morning, uh, but yet, uh, but still uh, speaking to us in, in a way that should shape our perspective and our lives. We pick up our reading this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. We'll read through verse 29. Hear the word of our Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. The word of our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come with thanksgiving that you have not left us to speculate. You have revealed yourself through your word, perfectly in your Son, Jesus Christ. 
and you continue to be at work to illumine our minds and our hearts by the work of your Spirit who dwells within all who believe. I pray, Lord, that even as you have promised that your word never comes back empty, that your Spirit would be at work within us today, that he would grant us understanding of this passage, but more than understanding, opening our hearts, he would shine a light upon us, within us, we may see where we are in need of correcting. We may find affirmation where we are in need of encouragement. That we might be transformed more and more, becoming who you have created us to be, becoming more and more like Christ. Lord, grant this to us, for in this is joy and in this is your glory. And so we pray, not pleading as if we must change your mind. But I pray with expectation because it is your promise and what you have promised you bring about. To you, Lord, may we honor by giving ear to you at this time. We pray in the name of Christ who is in the Word incarnated. Amen. Charles Dickens opens his classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities, with these familiar and memorable words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. The tremendous word picture that he paints to us to help us to enter into a story that he tells about the uh, three families in the midst of the French Revolution. But I have to admit that the first thing that comes to my mind whenever I hear these words or think of these words is not something profound that Dickens himself had written, but uh, the response to the story that Dickens had, uh, had written uh, from an episode of Cheers. Some of you may already know what I'm talking about. Some of you have probably never seen the show in the first place. Set in a bar in Boston during mostly the 1980s and the 1990s, Harvard-educated Fraser Crane decided he was going to bring some culture to this little bar, and so he began reading classic literature. And he started reading this particular passage as he wanted to read A Tale of Two Cities to everybody in the bar. And he began, and he said, it is the best of times, it is the worst of times. And immediately somebody butts in and says, no, which one was it? And he said, just hold on. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. And to which one of the characters, Cliff Clavin, said, boy, this Dickens guy really liked to cover his tail, didn't he? You know, I mean, so that's where my mind goes naturally, unless I'm really focused on this. But at the same time, these were perfect words in, in my mind, because Dickens was doing something here from a literary standpoint, not resting on my own, finding a little better literary analysis than came from Cliff Clavin. Uh, this is what two different sources indicated. They said this, the opening line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, embodies the dichotomy or the comparison that Dickens sets up between London and Paris during the French Revolution. Another one says this, from the first paragraph, Dickens begins developing the central theme of duality. 
his pairings of contrasting concepts such as the best and the worst of times, light and darkness, hope and despair, reflect the mirror images of good and evil that will recur in the characters and situations throughout the novel. And so the brilliance of Dickens' writings comes through his ability to compare and to contrast. The, the duality is the word that the, uh, that the uh, English scholars use. Well, that's significant as we come to this particular passage because in Hebrews 12, 18, particularly through 24, uh, the writer similarly uses uh, compare and contrast. He offers to us a, a duality that we are to understand in order that we would recognize the message not only that he's proclaiming in this particular passage, but that he's been proclaiming throughout this whole letter of Hebrews in order to motivate a people to recognize how good we have it in Christ, how good we have it because of the grace of God, because of the nature of God himself, who has made a promise and fulfilled that promise and is calling a people to live in light and in relationship to the promise that he has made. And so he uses this duality, this comparison and this contrast, not of two cities, but of two mountains, the first mountain being Sinai, the other mountain being Mount Zion. Now, Mount Sinai is the, in view in verses 18 through 21. If we are looking at the ESV, which I use and read from and many of us use, it doesn't even indicate anything about a mountain. It just says, we've not come to that which might be touched. If you're reading from an NIV or a King James or uh, it might indicate uh, that you will not come to a mountain, but it doesn't specify any particular mountain. Scholars are agreed regardless of, uh, of whether the word is there because it's, it's clearly is suggested uh, in the passage. But everybody's in agreement that what the writer is looking back to is Israel. After they had been delivered from their bondage in Egypt, as they were in the wilderness on the way before uh, God had given them to the law, he brought them to Sinai to the foot of this mountain in the middle of the desert. And a lot of what the writer of Hebrews is referring back to, you would read in, in Exodus chapter 19, particularly verses 10 through 25, although he does do other allusions. And he's reminding the people that when God brought his people out of Egypt and delivered them, he brought them to the foot of Sinai. And though Sinai represents God, it was also a place that promoted fear and trembling by the people who were there. When God brought Israel to the foot of Sinai, you might as well have put police barrier tape around it because he gave very strict orders. Nobody was to trespass. Nobody was to cross this line. Anybody crosses this line, the penalty is not enjambment, but death. He was so serious about this that the stipulation said, it's not even if you people, you know, you who can read, read the signs and step on this, you know, that you receive the penalty. Even if an animal, if an animal steps on this mountain, the animal will die. Nobody will touch him, but it will die as if uh, shot with an arrow um, or, or, or being uh, somehow uh, executed. It was holy mountain. And the, the, the standoff of this mountain was to reflect the holiness of God who would not allow anything unholy in his presence. And we're told in the description in, in, of the passage in, in, in Exodus that on top of the mountain, in the middle of this desert, there were, it was cloudy, it was, it was gloomy. And then on the third day, God would be present, but God's presence would be uh, reflected in thunder. 
and in lightning. And so you have this storm, this, this foreboding storm. And we're told that God did speak on that mountain. He spoke in a way that was uh, audible, in, first in response to Moses, and then because he was giving direction. Before even that, there was a trumpet that was blaring that all the people heard, and it was so glorious that you know not even Dizzy Gillespie could have blown out those notes. The people were in awe, but one of the things they knew it was, was gathering people to the mountain, gathering them all together that they may hear what God had to say. And then God speaking in response to Moses and then speaking to the people. God's voice was so powerful and so awesome that the people fell in fear. In fact, we're told, and the writer of Hebrews highlights that, the response of the people was so much terror that they begged Moses to beg God to stop talking. They, they couldn't handle it. Now, that's hard for us perhaps to imagine because we would long to have an experience where God so tangibly shows up. But it, the, the voice to the ear and to the mind was probably something like on a bright summer day trying to look up at the, the noonday sun. You know, it's something that would be great to see, um, but it's painful and, and it's blinding. And so they had that same sensibility. And, and so God had shown up in, in this place. And God had revealed his awesomeness and his holiness. And the holiness of God, as one theologian says, you know, we, we talk about it, particularly in our religious circles. But I, I read, can't remember who it was that I, I read it from, but uh, it says this is that the holiness of God is the one attribute that doesn't draw us to him. It makes us want to run away. It makes us want to hide. And that's what the people were experiencing in Sinai. There wasn't all, but there was also a fear and there was a distance. And that's the first mountain. The writer of Hebrews then shifts his attention and says to, to Mount Zion. And Zion itself was, it was a mountain in, uh, where Jerusalem rests. And because it is so significant, uh, the whole area, Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, often referred to kind of metaphorically as as Zion. We sort of understand that around here because we live in the Hampton Roads region, although, you know, the, many of us don't live anywhere near the river, uh, the rivers or, or, or that particular bay. But because it's, it's part of the region, just so people say that you recognize the whole area, but that's, that's kind of the, the same kind of imagery that's used when when Mount Zion and Zion is referred to, uh, it's referring to that whole geographic region. And, and he goes in and describes it. It's this, rather than desert, it's the city of our God. It's a city where people can. It's a city where angels are present. It's a city. It's also the city where Calvary. Uh, it's also the place where Calvary was, where the crucifixion of Christ took place. And the writer of Hebrews is is talking about these things. Just think about the two cities and think about the comparison and the contrasting between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. I, I made a list. Actually, I, I pilfered a list and then edited it somewhat. So it's mine and it's not mine all at the same time. Mount Sinai is in the desert. Mount Zion is the city of the living God. Mount Sinai spoke of earthly things. Mount Zion represents heavenly things. Mount Sinai brought an old covenant, which was ratified by the blood of animals. Mount Zion represents a new covenant, which is ratified by the blood of God's only begotten Son. 
Mount Sinai was characterized by guilty men in fear. Mount Zion features just men made perfect, or probably a better way of putting it, justified men made perfect. Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, Moses was the mediator. At Mount Zion, Jesus is the mediator. At Mount Sinai, only Moses was allowed to draw near to God. At Mount Zion, peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation are invited to draw near to the living and true God. Mount Sinai is all about law. Mount Zion is all about grace. Mount Sinai is marked by fear and terror. Mount Zion is a place of love and forgiveness. Mount Sinai was all about exclusion, keeping people away from the mountain. Mount Zion is all about invitation. And the writer of Hebrews here says, you know, Keith, if you want to kind of have the, the benchmarkers of the key verses to understand what he's saying here, he says, you have, he's writing to those who belong to Jesus Christ, who have recognized that he was crucified, rose again, and have trusted in him, who are going through a difficult time right now and wondering whether this faith is worth continuing in. And he says to them, as in verse 18, you who belong to Jesus Christ, you have not come to Sinai. And he picks up again in verse 22, and he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. And the message that the writer is trying to convey to us is, seems pretty clear. He's telling us that we are to live our lives in this way. We are not to come to Mount Zion. We're not to approach God as if we are coming to Mount Sinai. And that's an incredibly practical and important message, not only to be declared, but to be reinforced over and over and over again. Because there are many, many, many Christians who live their lives essentially born in Zion, because to be born in Christ, to believe in Christ, is to be born again in Christ. So you're born by Zion, who revert back to Sinai. This has certain characteristics, very common characteristics. We see them in any church. Many of us will see them in our own lives. Among the most prominent and most common would be people who feel that God is distant and may therefore feel distant from God. In other words, there should be people that are sound in their theology, who know a whole lot about God, who want to live their lives to honor God, who want to be good, want to do right, want to be considered to be godly people. And yet all of this knowledge and all of this life doesn't make them feel any closer to God because they just think God says, stay out. Reminded that God who is holy says, I will not allow anybody who is unholy into my presence, aware of their own sinfulness. God is like the Father that can never be pleased and who is never satisfied, who never really truly affirms. So he says a lot of nice things, kind of like receiving you know, nice cards on your birthday and gifts at Christmas. But in terms of actual relationship, God seems so distant and even though we hear and use these words to say, God is present and God loves you, and the emotional, the emotional, if not the intellectual mindset says, I can never really draw near. I just hope somehow I'm good enough. Maybe one day 
I will be accepted. Oftentimes such people have relationships that are based on performance. And other people who do think that God is near or do understand that God is near uh, still have a relationship with God that I'll call a transactional relationship. They, they, their relationship with God is based on how they feel like they've done this particular week. If I feel that I've been particularly good, I've read through all of the, you know, checked off all the boxes in my Bible reading plan this week, if I haven't run anybody over with my car or thought about it seriously, then I feel pretty good. And so I can come into church and say, God is here. And, you know, I feel, and, and maybe even experience the presence of God. But if I did think about somebody running over somebody with my car, even in the parking lot and when I came in, it's metaphorical, I was here, nobody else was here, when, you know, but uh, when I got here. If you're conscious of harboring some besetting sin, in other words, it's just this thing you just don't feel like you are able to shake, whether it's an action that you have or just unwilling to forgive, bitterness of circumstance, then you just assume, I can't talk to God right now, I can't come close to God right now, because what you have is a transactional relationship. It's a relationship based on performance. Whenever there's a relationship based on performance, we move back to Sinai, because the only way that we feel like we can overcome that, especially our shortcomings, because if we're honest, we never outgrow our shortcomings entirely, well, then we reenact the sacrificial system. Since we're not bringing our bulls and other things, we don't have a place, and we're not going to put a place in for people to come and sacrifice animals. The sacrificial system is much more metaphorical. It usually is bargaining. Lord, if you will do this, I will do this. Or, Lord, if I do this, then I hope you'll please, I hope you'll accept this. I promise to do this, 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 and this. Lord, I didn't do the Bible reading that I was supposed to do last week, or maybe I did all my Bible readings last week, but since I know that I'm a mess and you know that I'm a mess, I'm going to double that this week so that, you know, I get double dose so that you will see just how good I am. And that you'll accept that as a sacrifice that's pleasing to you and then restore the relationship based on what I do. It's a very common thing, but it's a very, very subtle thing. Another one that's very common and is this, is that the person who has been born of Zion but has reverted to a Sinai mindset uses the law more as a gauge to measure other people more than as a mirror to see ourselves. In other words, we know that law really, really well. And I can just tell you, Camper screwed up this week. I just won't tell you what he did. Now, he gets to preach in two weeks, and he'll tell you truthfully, Dennis screwed up this week, and pretty much every week, and he'll be telling the truth as far as that goes, too. That would be an example of using the law as a measuring stick against others, rather than as a mirror that God says, this is what is right, this is what I created you for, this is what, where you're going to find joy, and so look in the mirror, see where it doesn't measure up, and then do as I have told you, which is repent and believe and allow the Spirit to be transforming you. We look at the law and say, the problem is the whole world, we're gonna change everybody around us. If everybody else would just follow these rules, then life would be great. But we miss the point that the problem is not just everybody else who's not following the rules, but even if we are externally following the rules, we have this sense of bitterness and a lack of love that even if everybody else followed the rules, we wouldn't be satisfied. 
because we're using the law in a way that is not intended to. Now, I want to be very clear because it would be very easy to get this idea uh, because we're talking about moving from Sinai uh, to, uh, to Zion. We're moving from law to grace. And it's a very common misconception that the law somehow is, 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 is just a bad thing. The law is not. Paul writes to Timothy and is very clear in First Timothy, we know the law is good when it's used lawfully. The law is a tool. The law is to be used. A mirror is a tool to show you what is good and what needs work in your life. Now, if it's a mirror that can be taken off the wall, it can also be used to bang someone over the head. That would be an example of not using the mirror in the way that it's supposed to be used. This is exactly the way we use the mirror of the law in terms of our relationships with other people, our relationship with unbelievers in our community, our relationship with people that are distant, that these flags may represent, that they're over there, they need to be reached, we'll send somebody to go do it, but, you know, they don't measure up. They don't meet my standard. And we use the law when we reverted from Sinai, reverted back to Sinai, as a lens by which we look at everyone else. And, and the writer is saying, look, we didn't come to that mountain. That's not where we live if you are in Christ Jesus. And, and he's serious about that because we pick up in, in verse 25, he says this, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In other words, the message is being declared to you. Now, the imagery is the people that were uh, at Sinai who heard the message and said, I don't want to hear anymore. And the reason they didn't hear it, want to hear anymore is because the message that God was declaring wasn't affirming them enough, at least in their own minds. It was an absence of affirmation. I mean, God says, look, you are my people. You are the people that I loved. You are the people that I redeemed out of your slavery. You are going to be my people, and I'm going to form you to be my people. I'm going to lead you and guide you and provide for you because I love for you. And also because I love you, I'm going to shape you into what you should have been, what you were created to be. And that's why he gave the law. The response to that was, we don't want to hear anymore. And the writer's saying, look, we don't want to be like that. Although the fact of the matter is that he's writing that is because these people were. And the fact of the matter is, you and I also are. We like the good news part. We don't like the full truth part. Where the law pokes at us in sensitive areas. And the writer of Hebrews says, look, don't be... Don't, don't refuse him who is speaking. Now, somebody might ask, who it is, who is the speaking? It may be that the writer himself is speaking. And he's saying, look, don't refuse. It's not just don't refuse anything I say, but this message that he's bringing to them, because whoever is the medium is, ultimately what he's saying is, don't refuse him who is speaking, because God is speaking. Just as God was speaking through Moses, God is speaking through whoever it was that wrote this. God speaks through people in our lives. Don't refuse, not the person, but don't refuse him who is speaking, God who is speaking through the person who is encouraging you toward godliness. We may wonder about these people. I mean, if, even as I've described the story, God, even though says, you know, don't go here, don't step here. 
God showed up in such a powerful way that they were afraid. They, they had this dramatic experience. Do you ever feel like if you ever had that kind of an encounter with God? I mean, he was so tangible. So present. So real. That it would change you in such a way that you wouldn't, you know, you'd, you'd be forsaking your sin forever. It's important when we look at the scriptures to recognize that the foolishness of the people that are before us is just because they are the mirror by which we see our own portrait. It's very easy to say, oh, those foolish Jewish people back in, in that day, and a lot of anti-Semitism falls into that category. The reality is Israel is us. There's nothing either good or bad, bad or good, that took place in Israel that is not also true of us as God's people living on this side of the cross. And these people who had this dramatic experience, it's not insignificant that certainly they were moved. They never forgot it, but it was 40 days later that they were dancing around a cow declaring, not only is this cow our God, but somehow or another saying, this cow is the one that brought us out of Egypt. It's only a matter of the ticking of the clock before whatever it is that God has done in our lives that we, we may not forget the experience, but somehow it doesn't have the same grip on us that we assume that it's going to have. And whenever God shows up, and whenever God reveals himself for who he is and the holiness aspect of things, if we are living our lives with the lens of Sinai, we say, Lord, stay away. You said for me to stay away. I want you to stay. Be distant. Because a Sinai mindset says, stay off. No trespassing. Keep away. Private, holy property. The sign in Zion says, come whoever will believe. Come whoever knows that you are in need of grace. Come whoever will love Jesus because you know that Jesus has loved you. And so the writer is saying, be very serious about this, this message of, you know, we have not come to Sinai. It's not that we forget because there's an awful lot that is really good that is represented. Sinai is part of our history. It represents the holiness of God that sometimes as evangelical Christians we forget. We turn God into our buddy. And then characteristic, we assume he therefore likes everything we like because that's kind of what we choose friends on the basis of. And if he likes everything he likes, he's going to do things that we do and he's just going to constantly affirm us. And that kind of a demeaning of God forgets the fact that God is holy and perfect in such a way that no one dare come into his presence based on their own qualifications. The law is good. It may be difficult, but the law shows us the way that we are to live, not just because it pleases God, but God gave us the law because the law shows us the way he designed life to be lived. And it's just one of those things that we recognize that if we keep the law, life usually goes a whole lot better. The same with laws of physics and nature. I've shared this before, but it's always a good one. While I'm in many ways not happy with the laws of gravity, when in some of the ways I keep in accord with them, 
my life is much better. If I was to go on top of a high building somewhere and say, I don't like this law of gravity, it doesn't seem appropriate, it just seems so archaic, old people, superstitious people from years, and I decide I'm above that law, and I step off the high building, hey, it doesn't even have to be that high, two, three stories, um, my life might feel very free for what? I'm not a physics, you know, Justin somewhere, you can tell me the math on this, but, uh, but um, physicist and stuff. Um, but very soon, I'm going to find out the consequence of violating the laws of nature, the laws that God put into place, laws of creation. The same is true of the moral law that God has given to us. It's not there to restrain us. It's there to free us and put us on the track so that we would be able to flourish. Those things are part of Sinai, the good things of Sinai. But the problem is, because we can't approach God on our own qualification, we can't have a relationship with God. And the writer here is saying, look, don't forget that. And he goes on. And he says, look, if the people then in the past, if they did not escape, if we picking up again in verse 25, if they did not escape when they refused him and warned him on earth, in other words, when God met them tangibly on earth, when he gave them Moses and gave them, you know, two tablets in order to say, this is the way that you are to live, those people that had heard God speaking specifically through that which is on earth, then how much more? Well, I won't paraphrase, I'll, I'll read it here. Uh, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. An allusion to the Christ who has ascended, and yet who speaks to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, and yet is dwelling within his people. And he's giving us the same warning. The implication here, I think, is also fairly clear. The warning, in some senses, is the same. We don't take God lightly. It's a reminder of the privilege we have as we come to Zion. Because of God's grace, we are allowed to have access to him. But to quote the great theologian, Spider-Man, with great privilege goes great responsibility. And so the fact that we have been set free and we have this relationship that we can have with God because of what Jesus Christ has done all before us, everything that Zion represents, we need to make sure that we're not just ignoring God or saying we don't want to hear any more from God. We need to hear so that it is by hearing that we will be able to be changed. And he goes on and he finishes up by saying, here's, here's the deal. God is shaking things up. In the past, when he spoke, the earth shook. Now, metaphorically, he's shaking earth and heavens. And he's, the word heaven here is not about heaven where God dwells, but somewhat kind of like the atmosphere, the, the you know, solar, whatever, uh, the space. He's talking about the heavens in that way uh, there. Uh, but as God speaks, everything is getting shook. But there's a reason that things are being shaken. It's part of his purity test. He's giving it a shake test to see if it is pure. And anything that is not meeting his standard of purity gets shaken away and gets discarded. It's consumed by fire because it finishes up by saying, our God is a consuming fire. It's the same message that we hear from the apostles uh, that Jesus himself told, that, that, you know, that everything that is not of God, that is in our lives, that we are trying to build, the fire is going to consume Everything, though, that belongs to God, everything that is godly, it is purifying, strengthening, radiating. And that's a message that should bring us comfort. Although I suspect that it may not necessarily bring comfort. Because it seems kind of frightening, doesn't it? Things are going to shake. 
things are going to burn. Well, we are able to be comforted because of certain truths that we understand. I've never lived in California, only been through minor earthquakes, but I understand people that are experienced with this stuff. Now, if they're standing someplace secure, earthquake is inconvenient, but not particularly frightening. But if you're standing, you know, next to a a, a loose wall, uh, that would probably be unconcerning. If you're standing in a secure place, which is in Zion, in Christ, then the shaking things should not be of particular concerning because the only thing they're going to be shaken loose are things that ultimately are not going to be of any benefit for us anyway. And the same is true of the fire. And we know that he has this in mind because even if he's speaking, he's reminding us that he's pointing about Jesus Christ in the first place here is uh, even in the imagery, I mean, over and over, I'm only going to point to one when he's talking about Zion. He uses this when he talks in verse 24. He says, in Zion, uh, Jesus the meteor of the new covenant uh, and the sprinkled blood that is, speaks better word than the blood of Abel. You know, at first glance, it's like, okay, so Cain kills Abel. Abel's blood was spilled. What does Abel, you know, it, 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 we can look at this in, in, in two ways. Either way, that it just shows us how what Jesus' blood offered is, is better. If this is speaking about Abel and his blood being shed by his brother, his blood cries out, I'm a victim of injustice. Justice must be met. Blood of Jesus cries out, my blood has been shed. And in the shedding of blood, God has met the standard of justice because I paid the penalty for your sin. More likely, however, though, is able people that would have originally read this, having grown up in faithful Jewish homes, would have understood that Abel was the first one recorded in the scriptures of offering a sacrifice. Whether there were sacrifices offered uh, before that, you know, a lot of scholars would say, yeah, there was probably likely Adam and Eve offered sacrifices to God, but we don't have it ever recorded. Abel's the first one recorded as offering a sacrifice to God, and his sacrifice offered to God was pleasing to God. But those sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again. When Jesus Christ offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice, his blood was shed once for all, and it says it is finished. It says forgive them. And so when we're standing on Zion, we're standing in a firm place when things are shaken, it's not dangerous to us, even though it may hurt like pruning wood, because things are taken. But it's important we recognize that God is himself a consuming fire. God, who is, is the same today, yesterday, and forever, it is the same God, same character. It's a misunderstanding to think that all through the Old Testament, God is kind of like a you know Greek mythology, Zeus, kind of unstable, does what he wants to do, just kind of stay away. The Old Testament is filled with grace. And the New Testament is also filled with law. The issue is not the components. The issue is the relationship to them. And God is the same, and he continues to be a consuming fire. And that should be a comfort because we are reminded from this particular passage where Calva, the, of, that we live uh, in Zion, where Calvary uh, was located. And that God poured out his wrath, his consuming fire upon Christ, who was judged in our place. And when he did it, he completely consumed the guilt, the legal guilt of your sin and my sin. The fact that God is a consuming fire also tells us, though, that we are to come to him on his terms, not our own. And what are his terms? 
We come to him by his grace through faith in Christ. I began by talking about how Dickens opened his A Tale of Two Cities. Do you know what the closing words, the last sentence of A Tale of Two Cities is? Somebody probably does in here. I'm not going to ask you, but um, I mean, that's a metaphorical question. It's these words that many of you probably have heard as well. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. And it just seemed appropriate that these words would speak to us today. For those who recognize that we don't live in Sinai, but we live and we turn and we dwell in Zion. Because we hear Dickens' words resonate with us. For those who are in Zion, those who live in Zion, those who trust, approach God on the basis of his grace through faith in Christ, we are able to say it's a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It's a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Lord, bless us, we pray. Showing us where our tendency is to revert to Sinai, which gives us some idea that we are able to control things. And bring us to the freedom and the peace that has been purchased for us in Zion. By the power of your grace, you may transform us. We may know the joy of fellowship with you. To you be all praise and glory here in your church, even around the world. We pray in Christ. Amen.